miracles happened in the ancient Holy Land, and they can happen to you today as well. This message is the fourth in the series, Experiencing God. The message is entitled, Experiencing God's Power. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Hi, Pastor Dale here. So glad that you're part of our weekend services. Thanks for being here. We are involved this uh, month of July in a very, very significant series of messages called Experiencing God. We're talking about some modern lessons from an ancient land. I'm taking you with me into Israel, to different places. We're looking at lessons from uh, the life of Jesus, from biblical characters in the land of our Lord. And this weekend, we're going to talk about experiencing God's power. See, to live our lives the way God wants us to, we have to have His power. We're going to take a trip to the northern part of Israel, to a place called Dan, and to uh, understand something about the power of God in that place. We're going to talk about uh, God's power at the upper room in Jerusalem, where the, well, where the Holy Spirit was outpoured upon believers there. We're going to go to Mount Carmel, where Elijah had an experience with God and His power. We're going to go to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus taught His disciples the importance of power in their life and what the power of God could do for them. So let's get ready for an exciting journey today as we travel to these four places, but most importantly, that we learn the lessons together about experiencing the power of God in our lives. This site is significant where we are today on, on Dan because uh, something very uh, sad happened here actually as a part of the degeneration of the northern kingdom's worship. And of course, what happens over a period of time is because of the degeneration of the northern kingdom's worship, their idolatry, their will, uh, failure to stay uh, true to God, eventually then they are captured by the Assyrians and the Assyrians come in and disperse them. And Judah continues to remain in relationship with God to some degree. Of course, eventually they fall away from God as well and we end up with the Babylonian captivity. But we're in the northern kingdom now. Obviously, we're at the northern part of Israel. Uh, as has been mentioned, that Israel runs from Dan to Beersheba. And so we're at the upper parts of it, the, the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam now is uh, running the northern kingdom. He has, his influence is here as the ruler or the king of this area. Notice what happens, verse 25. Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and it became his capital. Later he went and built up the town of Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I'm careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. When these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So you got the picture here? So now he's the king of the northern kingdom, but where does everyone have to go to worship? To Jerusalem, right? And so his concern is, if we go, if I let all of our folks go back down to Jerusalem, what's going to happen is they're going to be influenced by Rehoboam. They're going to become loyal to Rehoboam again. I'm going to be in really big trouble. They're going to kill me, and I'm not going to be in the picture any longer. And so for his own personal expediency and political expediency, he makes a, a decision, a bad decision. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. He placed these calves, uh, calf idols in Bethel and in? Where else? In? Where are we right now? Okay. So Jeroboam, to avoid the people going back down to Jerusalem to worship so that he doesn't risk losing the kingdom himself, he says, we're going to set up some worship places outside of Jerusalem so that people can have a place to worship, but it's not going to be a threat to me and my kingdom. 
and he did it at Bethel, he does it at Dan. And what was set up at both of those places, the Bible says that there were idols in the form of a gold calf, all right? And the verse number 30 said, well, let me read verse 29. He placed these calves idols in Bethel and Dan at either end of the kingdom, but this became a great sin for the people worshiped the, what's the next word there? What did they worship? Idols, okay, that's a very important word, what I want to talk to you about in just a moment. Traveling as far as Dan to worship the one there, right? Let me stop there and let's talk about this. Where we are today, right here would have been an altar that would have been representative of the place where sacrifices were offered to what would have been right behind you here, this erection of a, a golden calf that would have been worshipped. And so, and, and so this was considered to be uh, worship of Israel to God, but instead of really worshiping God, what were they worshiping? They were worshiping an image, okay? And the image, they were. God says, don't make for me any graven image. Don't worship any idols. Don't make any graven image to me. And so in the high place, which by the way, this place had been a high place of worship of all other kind of gods throughout the years as well. But now Jeroboam comes in and establishes this as a place of worship with the sacrifices being offered here. Now, so often when we think about idolatry, we think about it in the form of bowing down to an idol or bowing down to a god or bowing down to some kind of image. And of course, that is what was going on here. They were worshiping, offering sacrifices to an image, to a golden calf. But what I want you to realize, and I think that you do, but I want to remind you of again today, is that an idol is not just the form of something, another God that you worship in the sense of some kind of a replica of something or some kind of icon that you bow down to or some kind of shrine that you put up in your house. All those kind of things certainly are spoken against in Scripture. But idolatry is something that goes far beyond that. Idolatry is when you put anything in your life that goes before God. That's all it is, okay? So anything in your life. You know that a relationship in your life can be an idol? right? You can have someone that you have in your life that you put before God. And if that person comes in your life before God, then what is that person to you? They're an idol. You know that your job can become your idol. Okay. You can worship at the altar of your job. If, 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 it's what, if, what, if the most important thing to you is what your position is and what your title is and how everybody else views you on the job and you spend all of your time and energy trying to make sure that you are just, that this is the center of your life, then what nothing wrong with doing a great job with what you do. But if it's the most important thing in your life, what does it become? It becomes an idol. Uh, they're all come, money can become an idol. I've got to have more money. I've got to have more of this and more of that. Material things are all kind of things that can become idols in your life. And all through the New Testament, not just in the Old Testament, but all through the New Testament, we are, we are, we're charged, we're warned, even as Christian believers, to be very careful that we do not allow any idols to form in our life. In fact, if you read the third or the first letter of John, 1 John, you'll find that that John talks about idolatry there as a, an apostle of the early church. And so what I want to encourage you to remember as we are here in this place, tell Dan, we look at this, this altar that was established to a, an idol and we think about how horrible that was for Israel forsaking God. Let's, let's not just condemn them for what they did. Let's be reminded of the fact that sometimes we actually do the very same thing. 
sometimes in our lives, we actually, it may not, we may not obviously be that we're bowing down to something as a form of a God to worship, but we bow down to things in our lives that we put before God. And so what I want to encourage you to do here as we're at this place where Israel made a very significant mistake in their spiritual lives, I want to encourage you to rededicate yourself today to this, that there's only going to be one God in my life, and that is the living God, God the Father, revealed to us only one way through His Son. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And so we worship God the Father through relationship with Jesus Christ. We're in the, what's called the traditional upper room. And uh, there are a variety of things we could talk about relative to this upper room, but I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter two, the second chapter of Acts. And um, we'll talk a little bit about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the importance of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, the value of that, the importance of it, and uh, an opportunity for us to begin to ask God to fill us with the power of His Holy Spirit. Jesus, after he, was, uh, after he was crucified, he rose from the grave. Um, he spent those 40 days with his disciples. Then he said to them, uh, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Stay in Jerusalem. Okay, so he, they were, many of them were from Galilee area. And so he told them, stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere until you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I'm going to send the Holy God. The, God the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And so you stay in Jerusalem until you're filled with power from on high. And then, so they gathered in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. They came back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, to the city, and they came together in an upper room where they began to pray. And so they're praying for 10 days. They're going to have a prayer time for 10 days waiting in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is outpoured upon them because Jesus said, don't do anything. Don't try go and preach. Don't do anything at all until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And now we read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, these words, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That one place, if you look back in chapter 1, was the one place of an upper room. So you can go back and read that in chapter 1. I'm not going to take time to do that, but just uh, uh, know that I'm telling you the truth, okay? It's, it was the upper room where they went to, right? You can read again in chapter 1 all about that. So they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every, every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Remember, he, they were from Galilee, right? So they recognized their accent. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and other part, and the parts of Lib- Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. They, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. 
raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of that great or the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did, did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Anybody want to stop and say hallelujah right there? Okay. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The reason it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him is because he was perfect. He was the perfect son of God. And so death could not hold on him because the wages of sin is death. There was no sin in Jesus. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Okay, we just passed by what is recognized as the tomb of David. Okay, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we're witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at your right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or Lord in Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart or to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? One translation said, what must we do to be saved? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all, you, all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't that amazing? Incredible story. Yeah. Let me tell you why this is so significant for us today. Let me give you a little bit of the backdrop. Peter, as you recall, we talked about it several places now. Peter, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion or right before his crucifixion, what did Peter do? What mistake did Peter make? He denied the Lord three times, right? And of course, Peter 
felt all the guilt of denying Jesus. And of course, we also talked about the story up in Galilee of how Jesus restored him back by the water and said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. There was the restoration that happened. But nevertheless, we see the weakness of Peter in that moment. But not too many days later, they're gathered together in an upper room like this. Now, we don't know specifically that this was the upper room, but again, uh, it's one of those situations in Israel. If it's not here, it's near, okay? It's somewhere nearby here, but an upper room very much like this. And so Jesus said, go there, stay there until you're filled with power from on high because you're not equipped to do what I want you to do until you have my power in you, okay? And this is very important for us to understand as Christians. The Christian life cannot be lived in our own power, okay? The Christian life was designed to be lived by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. If the apostles needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, do you think we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Of course we do. There's no question about it that we need to be filled with the power of the Spirit of the living God. And so they came to an upper room very much like this. And they began with a prayer meeting and they pray for 10 days. They're asking God, waiting upon God to send the Holy Spirit. And then there came that day, the day of Pentecost. And that Pentecost was a particular Jewish celebration that happened. There would have been people from all over celebrating that, that particular event here in Jerusalem. And so the scripture says that the, the Spirit of God came into that room like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire set down upon the top of the heads of all of those people that were there. And then suddenly something supernatural happened. All of them began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And there was this moment where the Holy Spirit was outpoured upon these people and they began to pray in languages they had never learned. That's incredible to think about. What really, there's a lot that tells us there, but one of the things it tells us is that when the Holy Spirit fills you, the first thing he goes after is your tongue. Okay, amen, okay. I mean, you know, your tongue's gotten you in more trouble than anything else, right, okay? Would you agree, okay? Your tongue has gotten you in way more trouble than your hands have, okay? Uh, so, it, it, so the Spirit of God set upon them tongues of fire and touched their tongues. And they began to speak in another language as the Holy Spirit gave them the utterance. They began to pray in languages they'd never learned before. And they're so filled up with the Holy Spirit that they're just happy and joyous and they're bouncing around in the room and they spill out of the room and they're, they're, they're praying in all these different languages out in the streets of Jerusalem and people are coming by and thinking, what's going on, man? This is a party. These guys must be drunk. And then Peter steps up. Now, remember, Peter was the guy who had messed up not too many days before, okay? And now here is the fella who had messed up. Jesus has restored him. And what you see now is of all the people that were picked to, pick, to preach the Pentecost message, who was picked? Peter was. Why? Because he knew something about grace, didn't he? He understood what grace was all about. And so he was chosen by God to preach that Pentecost message. And so he begins to share the message. He says, no, no, these people are not drunk. Uh, this is nine o'clock in the morning. People would not be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that I'm going to pour out my spirit in the last days upon all flesh. And young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. It's going to be an amazing event. And so this is what God said he was going to do. He was going to take the spirit of God and put it into the lives of people. And of course, we see what happened that day that as he preached this message, talked about Jesus and his death and resurrection, who he was, 
in that moment, people were convicted in their hearts that they needed a relationship with Christ. And they asked the question, what must we do to be saved? How can we have what you have? And Peter said, repent, that is turn, do a 180, turn your life away from the world toward God. Turn your, way, turn your life toward God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just like we did. And of course, that day, 3,000 people came into the early church. That is the, that is the day the church was born, okay? And that first day, we know that the church had at least 3,120 members, okay? It was the first mega church that ever existed, okay, right? So on the very day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They're baptized, and that launches this amazing church in Jerusalem that then eventually begins to be spread to places all around the world as the, as the, as the apostles go and, and preach the message in various places from that going forward in the book of Acts. But what does this have to do to, for you and me? Let me tell you what it has to do for all of us. One of the things that you and I need to make sure that we do, and in this upper room, it's a great reminder of this, that you and I need to make sure that in our lives that we're seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to him, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. When you call on the name of your God, I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord 
and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sias of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So I'm going to give you three C words that anytime you think of Carmel, you'll remember these three words. Number one, courage. How many know you have to have courage to serve God, right? Okay. Did Elijah have courage? He was one and there were 450 prophets of Baal. Let me tell you, it may seem like the world that we're in today, there's a lot of anti-God forces in our world. They're all around and their voices are loud, aren't they? Okay. So what do we need to be in the face of a world that is shouting unbelief and shouting anti-God things? What do we need to be as the people of God? We need to be like Elijah. We need to have, what's the word again? Courage. Okay. Elijah had amazing courage courage to withstand those 450 prophets of Baal. And by the way, who gave him that courage? God did. He gave him the courage and God can give you the courage to stand strong. This is the power of God working in your life. The second word I want to give you is confidence. Okay. So courage and say it with me. Courage and confidence. confidence. Okay. Did Elijah have confidence? What did he do when these guys are like trying to get Baal to answer? He starts taunting them and say, maybe your God's asleep. Shout louder. What's going on here? See, Elijah was not stressed at all. You know why? Because Elijah knew who God was. Okay. And I want you to know that there is a God that we serve. Know who God is. Okay. God is still alive and well in our world today. God is not sleeping. He's not distant. God is alive. So it starts with courage and with courage. Then we add to it. What's that word again? Confidence. Confidence that God is going to work in our lives. And then the next word I want to give you is conquering. Okay. So out of your courage and out of your conquering will come out of your courage and confidence will come. What's the other word? Conquering. Okay. Who ended up winning the battle that day? Okay. Not Elijah, really. Who was it? It was God that won the battle. Okay. And the same is true for us that as you go forth into your world, into your family. Some of you have family situations right now that you're facing. Maybe you have financial things that you're facing in your life. You have problems that you're dealing with. How many have at least one problem you'd like to see resolved in your life? Okay. Okay. If you don't have any, come see me. I'll share some of mine with you. All right. Okay. But everybody here has some problems. Face your problems with courage. Okay. Face your problems with confidence and face your problems knowing that in the end, who's going to conquer. Okay. Our God is a mighty God. Our God is powerful. Our God is the God who fights for us. Elijah didn't have to fight that day. God fought for him. And then he fought in the power of God to kill the 450 prophets of Baal. So anytime you think about Mount Carmel, remember those three words in your relationship with God. Number one, it is 
courage. Number two, I'm, I'm going to have confidence. And number three, I know that God will always conquer. Amen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's break this down just for a few moments. We understand what's going on. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Simon said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't get this just by thinking about it, or you didn't get this from a conversation you had with people. The heavenly father helped you to understand who I am. And upon this rock, I will build my church in the gates of Hades, as we'll talk about in just a moment, or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, there's some confusion at times about what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was not saying to Peter that Peter was going to be the rock of the church, okay? Because some of you know that Peter was not very stable all the time, right? Okay, and so Jesus is not gonna build his rock on Peter. So it's not that, and some traditions will say that Peter is the rock of the church. He's the foundation of the church. Uh, that's not our understanding of scripture. Peter, the revelation that Peter had about who Jesus was is the rock of the church, right? And so here's the thing, that we come to faith in Christ by acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and then we are standing on the rock who is Jesus Christ. The rock is not Peter. The rock is the revelation of who Jesus is, all right? And so to get to heaven, you don't need a relationship with Peter. You need a relationship with Jesus, right, okay? Peter doesn't get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. And Jesus is the one that provides the rock and the security for your life. Now, it's interesting that in this place, as, it has, as was mentioned a moment ago, uh, there, you're gonna see in a few moments this cave area with carve-outs where there's a lot of idols, a lot of gods that were worshiped here, going back to uh, Greek periods, Roman periods, and those kind of things. And as, as, as was mentioned, there was a cave in the middle where water came out, and that area was known as the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. So you can just imagine that Jesus says right here in this place, in a known place where people would have identified that this being the very gates of hell. This was known, I mean, this area, Caesarea Philippi, was known as Sin City. I mean, you think that Las Vegas is bad? This was a bad place when it comes to, to just the moral degradation of this area. And so Jesus said, upon this rock of revelation, I will build my church and the gates of Hades. He could have very well pointed in that direction because that would have been their identity. But of course, we know it goes beyond that. The demonic structures, the demonic entities that exist, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is building a church that no demon will ever prevail against, okay? 
There's no false God. There is no demon that can ever prevail against. And when we stand in relationship with Jesus Christ, as I mentioned in one of our other teachings, we stand in an authority that comes by him. And then he said this, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus said, now that you understand who I am, you understand the authority that we have in relationship with in your relationship with me and that the gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church that I'm building. Now I'm going to give you some keys. What do keys do? Keys lock and unlock, right? And so I want all of us today to remember that when you came into relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus gave you a set of keys. Everybody hold your hand up for a moment, all right? I want you just to envision with me for a moment that you've got a set of keys in your hand, the keys of the kingdom of God. And that means in prayer, you can bind things up that shouldn't be. And in prayer, you can loose things that need to be loosed, right? The keys of the kingdom happen by our prayer. It happens through our praise and through our worship, through our uh, pr through the promises of God's word that we take those keys of the kingdom and where there's, there are forces of hell at work in our lives, we say, no, we're taking hold of the keys of the kingdom of God. The gates of hell shall not prevail. So I'm going to lock up that demonic thing that's attacking my family or that demonic entity that's attacking my life. And I'm going to loose into our lives the blessing and the flow of righteousness and peace and joy. So just remember here at Caesarea Philippi who the rock is. The rock is not Peter. The rock is Jesus, and in relationship with Jesus, there is no gate or force of hell that will ever be able to prevail against him. Well, for the last few moments, we've been talking about the importance of experiencing God's power. We need the power of God. We went to the northern part of Israel, to a place called Dan, and we've talked about the fact that to experience the power of God, you've got to put God first and worship Him only. You can't live a life of idolatry and expect to experience the power of God. And then, of course, we went to Jerusalem, to the upper room. We talked about the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that by faith we ask God to fill us with power from on high. And just like He did for those early believers, He will do it for you and me. We went to Mount Carmel where we talked about Elijah and he, how he withstood the prophets of Baal. And we talked about the fact that you and I need to experience God's power in a way that produces courage in us and confidence in us and a sense of conquering. And then we went to Caesarea Philippi where we learned that a relationship with Jesus provides us strength and power and there's no force of hell that will ever be able to prevail against you when you're walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the power of God at work in your life. So what I want to pray right now is I want to pray that the power that we've talked about today, the principles that we learn, actually become more real in you, that today you will open your life to the freshness of God's power and know that He is for you, He's not against you, and He's going to help you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the wonderful privilege of being able to travel to these places in Israel by video, and thank you for the lessons that you gave us today. Thank you, Lord, that you're teaching us about your power. And I want to pray for every person, Lord God. I pray in the name of Jesus that today you would empower us with strength from on high. I pray, O oh God, that we would remember, Lord, to lay aside the idols in our life so that we're only serving you and following you. I pray, O oh God, that you'll help us to understand the value of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that by faith today, you would fill us up. I pray that you would remind us, O oh God, that in your grace and power, Lord, that there's nothing that is too hard for you, just like Elijah learned that lesson at Mount Carmel. And Father, I pray that each one of us would continue to be filled with power from on high. Let the power of the Spirit of God work in every life. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's Word that will make a difference in your life now and forever. Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life, and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ. And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. We'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with the pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org slash new beginnings. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.